0: Witnessing a baptism is always a a great blessing, isn't it? To see people affirm their faith and love for Christ and desire to follow Him, to be witnesses of God's love for us again, pictured in the baptism. What a wonderful blessing. Of course, getting baptized is is no guarantee of salvation or of future obedience, for that matter. Um, James, the book that we're studying now, Um, was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, to uh, alert his followers, his church, really, of the necessity of knowing for sure that you have an authentic faith, that you've been saved, that you've been converted. So just getting into the waters of baptism doesn't assure that. There are There are actually tests found in Scripture, many of which are found in the book of James, that actually do test the authenticity of your faith. But saying a few words and getting in water doesn't do that. What you heard this morning from these six was that they want to obey Christ and follow his direction. Time will tell. Faithfulness will tell. The tests of faith will reveal whether or not their faith is genuine, authentic. As we look at this wonderful letter from James uh, we discover some wonderful things about the authenticity of our faith. And so we're going to uh, be in this book for a while. If you have a, a copy of the Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open it up to that particular book, James, right after Hebrews. Um, and as I said, James was writing to people that, that belonged in his church but now we're scattered all over the planet. They were scattered because of, of persecution that was going on back in Jerusalem where James's church was. Um, these folks had most likely come to faith on the day of Pentecost and been baptized after Peter had preached his famous sermon in Acts chapter 2. That's who these folks were, but, but as they left Jerusalem because of persecution, James wrote them a letter. James wanted to make sure that, that not only was they, were they growing in their faith, not only were they strong in their faith, but it was an authentic faith. It was a faith that was real. And so he, writing the people that belonged to his church, wanted to encourage their hearts, wanted to give them something concrete by which they could examine themselves to see whether or not their faith was authentic. And so the, the letter of James, is intended to showcase the authentic Christian life with a series of contrasting choices between what the world would do and what a follower of Christ would do. We see these divided up throughout the book, and each of these sections of the book, each of these uh, contrasting choices are introduced by the words, my brothers. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1, for example. James introduces the first test of authentic faith by saying, my brothers. If you look down at verse 16, he says it again. And then 19. And throughout the entire book, he introduces each new topic or test of authenticity by saying, my brothers. So here we have the first one, Uh, my brothers. And then followed with a command to obey. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. The first test of faith, found right here between verses 2 and 15 was was about whether or not you could view the trials that you encounter, which are inevitable inevitable by the way, whether you can view those trials with joy. If you can view the trials that you're in with joy, then you're not like the average person. Because only the believer, the person with authentic faith, can actually view trials and be joyful about them. Because, God has done a work in their heart. Because they know that those trials were given to them by God for the purpose of making them steadfast or Christ-like. That's the first section we see in verses 2 through 4. Right out of the chute, he says that someone with authentic faith would deal with trials with joy. So far, in our study of James, we've been in it now for about four or five weeks. So far, we've seen that the, the tests of our faith... Um, will include a joyful response to trials. We'll re- include a clear understanding of trials. We will know that God is behind them, even though they're severe. God is behind them to accomplish something good in us. The next is having a submissive will to what God is doing. Instead of resisting at every turn, submitting to what God is doing, believing that He has our best in mind. And then, last week, we talked about the importance of praying for wisdom so that we can navigate the trials of life to the glory of God and to our own joy. This is what we've seen so far. Today, we're going to take a look at the next thing that James communicates about trials. Again, all he's talking about in this first chapter, verses 2 through 15, is the test of authentic faith in the, in the context of trials. Today, I'm going to focus on verses 9 through 12. Follow along as I read, if you would. James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and withers the grass, its flower falls, and beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. What wonderful words for the believer, for the church. In these verses, James communicates that if our faith is going to stand the test of trials, we will need to have a humble attitude. What is your attitude towards life in general? Would it fit under the category of humility? Humility? Or would it be something different than that? Today, I want to urge you from these verses to adopt and develop an attitude of humility that complements genuine faith. That's what I want out of you today. I want you to listen to the exposition of these few verses and adopt and develop the attitude that's described here for yourself because that attitude complements authentic faith. I want you to see that with a humble attitude toward God's sovereign design of your affairs, you will be able not only to know that your faith is real, you'll be able to experience more peace and joy, and who couldn't use more of that, but also bring the most glory to God. All that from these few verses. James highlights the importance of humility in this very interesting way that we see in these verses. And so, let's look at these important verses That may seem to be a little bit out of place at first glance, but with a closer look, we realize that they belong in this context because they're between verse 2 that speaks of trials and verse 12 that speaks of trials. And so he's sharing this contrasting view of, of wealth in the context of trials. So it belongs here. I just want to help you see how it belongs here. I want to suggest to you that we have two more trials before us. The trial of poverty, we would all agree that's a trial, but also the trial of wealth, on the other hand. So let's look at the first point in verse nine. The poor rich, or the rich poor, poor being the noun. Notice that he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Who's the lowly brother here? Well, first of all, we know he's a brother, right? So he's a believer. We know that this person that James is referring to believes the gospel, the word lowly has been translated humble, poor, of low degree, but I think James is referring to the scattered Jewish Christians, the ones that used to worship in his church in Jerusalem, but now are out there fending for themselves. They've been displaced from their homes. They've been deprived of basic sustenance. They're looked down upon by almost everyone around them, maybe even looked down upon by people within their local churches. Many of them were dirt poor, lacking jobs, lacking homes, lacking even food. They were at the bottom of the totem pole. These people were lowly because of their circumstances. Now, in America, these kinds of people aren't that common, at least at this level of poverty that's described by James, because we're such an affluent country. But to make this verse applicable to our culture, we may want to think of it in terms of economic differences that actually do exist, even in this church. Interestingly, James commands that these destitute folks glory in, rejoice in, and even boast about their high position. Did that strike you as odd? Hey, dirt poor person, rejoice, exalt in your elevated position. That's countercultural, isn't it? That's counterintuitive. What is their high position? Well, poor believers may be, may be low in the world's eyes, but they're exalted in God's eyes, don't you think? The poor brother may have an economic disadvantage, but James thinks he has a spiritual advantage. He may be looked down on by man, but exalted by God. He may be homeless, but he will have a heavenly home that blows away the greatest mansion known to man. We can say, or James would say, if he were here, that Bill Gates has got nothing over the poor or the poorest believer. There's only one possible answer that's on James's mind here to the question why Boast about their high position, what is it he's talking about? This answer only makes sense to people of authentic faith. Here are a few verses that let us know that of the true status of every believer, genuine believer. First is from Paul's pen in Romans chapter 8. He says this, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's pretty significant, don't you think? We, as Christians, are called children of God by God. And it gets better, and of children, then heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Christ. How much better can it get in terms of exaltation than that? I mean, that's pretty exalted in my mind. Uh, Paul continues, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. I mean, what would you think if you were the sole heir of Bill Gates? be pretty excited, maybe, a little bit? Trying not to hope for his death? <laughs> Being an heir of God is a little bit better than an heir of Bill Gates. That's Paul's point. Peter has a similar view. He says this, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We are God's special people. Christian? Evidently, being poor economically or being poor socially doesn't affect God's view of us. God sees being of humble circumstances an advantage just like James. So what's the countercultural, anti-intuitive, anti-intuitive advantage that we have? Let me say it here as clearly as I can. Our advantage is that we understand the need we have. Poor people understand the need. Rich people don't see any need for a Savior. Excluding electing grace and the effectual call, unless the rich are convinced by pain, trial, or hardship. By the way, these are all great equalizers in our society, aren't they? It doesn't matter how much money you have, pain is pain. (laughs) But rich people, unless they're convinced by pain, trial, or hardship, see no need for God. James says that's a disadvantage. Additionally, poverty and lowliness for the believer is just a short-term trial. The Apostle Paul says it's light and momentary. The Apostle Paul said that poverty is a mercy of God. Thank God if you find yourself in financial need or on the low end of the scale. Why? Paul would say, James would say, Jesus would say, because you have much more clear view of God from that perspective. In fact, do you remember Jesus and how he began his ministry in Matthew chapter 5? In his first sermon, the first point of his sermon, what did he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Isn't that amazing? Evidently, economic poverty inclines us to spiritual poverty. And spiritual poverty is the prerequisite into the entrance of the kingdom. James didn't pity the poor brothers he was addressing. No, I think he saw them as spiritually advantaged. The rich, on the other hand, let's move to our second point. He mentions them in verses 10 and 11. The rich. here. The rich is the, the noun. The poor rich. Those poor rich people, James is saying. The statement in verse 10 seems fairly perplexing, doesn't it? At least opposite of what we might think and what the world would think. Why does James say that the rich should boast in their low humiliation? I think the world would say that the richest position is anything but lowly, anything but humiliating. But here in verse 10, James says, and let the rich brother glory in his humiliation. I think that strikes us all as a little bit odd. Who doesn't want to be rich? At least in our culture. But James here commands boasting in their low position. Rich people, I want you to boast in your low position." This is kind of interesting, at the least, to consider, especially to us in this room. Back then, it was really cut and dry. Rich and poor were very clearly defined. Here, you know, we, we complain if we only make 40000 a year. And, of course, 40,000 a year is significantly more than 98% of the rest of the world. You know that, right? I read an article a while back that said, every American is in the top 2% of the world's wealth. Every American. We're closer to Bill Gates than the rest of the world on this one. We would be considered the wealthy in James' mind. So this is really important we get this here. What James is saying. So, what is James saying when he tells us to boast in our low position? Well, because the wealthy along with their wealth will pass away just like a wild flower, according to verse 10, in the scorching heat, the rich and poor alike will all pass away. This sounds a little bit like Ecclesiastes to me. Jesus said that our lives do not consist of the abundance of our possessions. And yet, it seems like that is the focus of much of our attention. Let me show you a few verses that describe the spiritual disadvantages of being wealthy. First of all, from Jesus in Matthew 13. In His his parable of the sower, He said, "'As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Jesus was saying that money gets in the way of the gospel regularly in people's lives. And not just having money, but pursuing money gets in the way. This same Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, in Revelation chapter 3 verse 17 says this, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Evidently, according to Jesus, wealth impedes clear vision. We don't see clearly. We have needs that we don't even recognize. Paul said to Timothy... In 1 Timothy 6, 17, As for the rich in this present age, that would include us, charge them not to be haughty, not to be prideful, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So we have a choice here that is given to us by James, given to us by Jesus, given to us by Paul, to focus on riches or on Christ. Material wealth, James is saying, lures us to focus our attention on things. And it's not new to you and me. It's not like we've discovered a way to be distracted by finances. (laughs) This has always been the problem, according to these men of our faith. So Jesus, Paul, the Apostle John, James, Peter, all warn against the dangers or deceitfulness of wealth. They all say, and agree with one another, wealth strangles spiritual life. But we also know in Scripture that wealth isn't a sin. So we need to think clearly about this. Knowing these things should humble even the mildly wealthy, though, shouldn't they? The entire New Testament, as well as what we see in people's lives all around us, maybe what we see when we look in the mirror suggests that riches are a potential danger to spiritual life. Jesus views them as a spiritual liability rather than an asset. And I think that's where James is picking this up. James's idea that a believer who is material, materially well-off or healthy or otherwise physically blessed should rejoice when trials come because these trials teach him the momentary nature of those material blessings and their inability to give inner and lasting satisfaction and joy. Do you know that about your well-being? That those things do not bring about the joy that God does? Do you know that? If you don't you will soon know that. But both the rich and the poor in their possessions are like wildflowers that pass away. I think James is saying here that wealth is a trial that very few people can navigate well. The rich Christian is to cultivate the poverty of spirit that he experienced when he came to Christ. Do you remember that day, friends, when you realized your need for Christ, when the Gospel made sense to you? Do you remember that day? Do you remember the humility that you experienced in realizing that unless God came and saved you through the work of Christ, you were lost? And the need for Him and your dependence upon Him, do you remember that day? That's the focus of our lives, not the other things that can cloud our vision. This this group of rich people, and I want to say including us here in this church, uh, the the view of rich people is is to work at that lowliness that we all experienced when we came to Christ, to focus on that lowliness and humility and make that our boast, not on our wealth. Faith in Christ to meet his needs lifts the lowly Christian beyond his trials to that exalted position in Jesus Christ and his eternal kingdom, where as God's child, this poor person, He is rich and can rejoice and boast in Christ, the heir of all eternity. Faith in Christ does the same thing for the rich believer whose wealth is temporary. It fills him with the spirit of lowliness and true humility. As the poor brother forgets all his earthly poverty, so I hope that the rich brother forgets all his earthly riches. The two are equals by faith in Christ, is what James is saying. Now let's move to verse 11 and 12. I've titled this point, Be a Mayfly. Verse 11 and 12 says this, For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised for those who love him. Now, the language here in verse 11, as I was studying this, reminded me of the mayfly. Um, I happen to like fly fishing, and so the mayfly is an important insect to me. Uh, And I know a little bit about mayflies. Um, I know now more because I looked at Wikipedia yesterday. Um, But the mayfly adult female only lives for five minutes. How like that, ladies? Most species, male or female, live less than 24 hours as adults. Talk about vanity. Talk about a mist, a vapor. And it's gone. The issue that I want you to focus on this morning in this short life expectancy of the mayfly is the singular focus of their very short life. Mayflies make the most of every minute. They accomplish in the few short hours that they live exactly the purpose for which God created them. Which is to reproduce, to create more food for aquatic life, life forms. That's why, they're, that's why they exist. That's why they exist. John Wesley, perhaps thinking of the mayfly, once wrote this, I am a creature of a day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. I'm a spirit coming from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf. A few months hence, I am no more seen, I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. James calls life a vapor or a mist. In light of eternity, how should we then live if this is true? Should we spend our very short lives trying to get more wealth, more riches, more vacations, better portfolios? The prayer of Joseph Bailey says it well, I think. Lord, burn eternity into my eyeballs. So everywhere I lick, everywhere I look, I see this this burning desire to live for eternity. In light of eternity, our lives are just as short as the mayfly. Five minutes, women, is all you got. (laughs) Men, if you're lucky, you might get 24 hours. That's the life of a mayfly. Is Christ's kingdom our focus? Or is our focus getting rich or wishing you were rich? If your focus is Christ, listen closely to the point here of these verses. If your focus is Christ, whether rich or poor, you can be confident that your faith is genuine. A humble and realistic view of your circumstances is a good barometer of the authenticity of your faith. Are you submitting to God's design on your circumstances? Whether you're rich or poor, is your joy and peace resting on Christ? Or is is it hopefully resting on momentary pleasures here and momentary pleasures there? Where does your life's joy come from? How are you spending your life? The great C.T. Studd wrote... These words, this poem, just before he died, he wrote this. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet, and stand before his judgment seat only one life will soon be passed only what's done for christ will last only one life the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice bidding me selfish aims to leave and to god's holy will to cleave only one life will soon be passed only what's done for for christ will last only one life A few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life, t'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. <clears throat> Only let my love with fervor burn. And from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, there, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, "'Twas worth it all." Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be. If the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. This, is, this came from observing verse 12. Blessed is the man who will remain steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. The crown being life which God has promised to those who love him. And since I love Jim Elliot, I'm going to end with one of my favorite quotes from him. When it comes time to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. Let's pray. Oh Lord, when we have a moment of silence when we start to think about, contemplate our lives. In light of the mayfly, in light of James 1, 9 through 12, uh, we become burdened with the frivolity in which we partake. We become concerned about what we truly love and who we truly love. God, in your mercy, through the work of your Holy Spirit convicting our souls, I pray that we would anew, this morning, commit to living one life for Christ, however long or short it may be, I pray that we will look through the eyes of eternity, that we will not boast in our wealth, that we will not boast in our health or our abilities, but that we will rest completely on Christ, that we'll embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who came, who left everything to come to this planet to die for our sin. That we might know salvation and newness of life god help us to live as jesus lived and i pray this in his name amen